Interesting. So, all right, if you'll open to the book of Matthew again, chapter 5. Today we'll be reading verses 17 through 20. As Pastor Bruce continues his series on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, how thankful we are that you've revealed to us your law. Lord, but we're also glad that as it reveals your righteousness and, Lord, our depravity, God, you've provided a way for that law to be fulfilled through your Son. God, may we just trust in him uh, for all that we need and all that we are and for our entrance into your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we continue in our series on the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, and that's Jesus Christ, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, I want to introduce you to someone that you've probably never heard about, or maybe some of you have. His name is Marcion. He lived very early in the life of the church during the second century. The reason that we remember Marcion today is because of what he believed. He believed and even taught that the Old Testament scriptures are incompatible with Christianity. He believed that the God of the Old Testament was a tribal deity of the Jews and that he was legalistic and judgmental. On the other hand, he believed that the God of the New Testament is different altogether, that he is a God of compassion, a God of grace and So he rejected the Old Testament scriptures and and even went so far as to rewrite the New Testament by eliminating all references to the Old Testament. And as you might imagine, naturally, he even erased what Jesus said about the Old Testament right here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Now, I said you've never met Marcion before, but there's actually a good chance you've met someone like him. Although Marcion is long gone, we still hear variations of his view of the scriptures all the time. Just recently, a famous pastor suggested we need to, quote, unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. He said, and I quote, first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. Now, I get it. The Old Testament scriptures, they present us with a lot of challenges. I get that, such as these perplexing laws and these very troubling stories that we read about. And we're scratching our head and trying to figure out how to make sense of it all as well. Well, how does all that apply to me today? I've heard people say that they just want to focus on Jesus. After all, now that he's come, all that stuff in the Old Testament 
Listen, it doesn't really matter anymore. So what should we do as Christ followers? Should we unhitch our faith from this part of the Bible? Is it okay to just ignore the Old Testament and only focus on the new? Well, perhaps the place to begin is by asking another even more important question, and that is, notice it in your notes coming up on the screen, what did Jesus believe about the Old Testament Scriptures? What did Jesus believe? What was his view of the Old Testament? After all, as Christ followers, we should believe what Jesus believed. And since that is true, we need to know what Jesus believed. So what did Jesus believe about the Old Testament Scriptures? And here's what we're going to see this morning, is that Jesus affirmed his belief in the Old Testament Scriptures. He doesn't toss it out. He doesn't set it aside. In fact, he endorses all of it. Jesus says what we do with all of God's word is all important. In fact, Jesus' commitment, his affirmation of the Old Testament is so great that people who don't obey it better than the scribes and Pharisees won't even be allowed into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's teaching like this that caused quite a stir among the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And for good reason. To begin with, Jesus wasn't a member of the religious elite. He hadn't been trained in their schools. He wasn't counted among their elite. Yet as an untrained son of a local carpenter, he was traveling all around Galilee teaching with this great authority. Then to top it all off, at every turn, Jesus challenged their teaching. That is, the religious elite's teaching. He was brutally critical of the scribes and Pharisees who were widely regarded as the authoritative teachers of the Old Testament Scriptures. And then to the chagrin of these particular religious leaders, Jesus often blatantly violated their traditional laws as they understood it. He had the audacity, Jesus did, to socialize with sinners, to break the Sabbath, to touch the unclean without any care for the purity laws. And so in light of all this, you can imagine the questions that people now had in their minds about Jesus Christ. Is Jesus rejecting the law of Moses that they held so dearly in their minds is he, is he here to now overturn everything our Jewish forefathers taught in the law of Moses? And these questions eventually, as you might imagine, led to misconceptions about Jesus' relationship to the law. Which is why Jesus states here in verse 17, notice what he says, his very first words, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, that phrase that we see here that Jesus uses, do not think, implies something. It implies that there were rumors circling about Jesus' attitude toward the law. People 
were accusing Jesus of being this radical revolutionary who was bent on destroying or even overthrowing the law. But Jesus now corrects their misconceptions. Jesus is on the side of the mountain, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus corrects misconceptions about his relationship to the law and the prophets, taken together what mean as the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, before moving on, we ought to clarify what Jesus meant by the law and the prophets. In those two terms, the law and the prophets, when you take them together, refer to the entire Old Testament Scriptures of Jesus' day. In fact, the law means the Torah. And the Torah is simply the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets refer to the historical books of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, when we now hear the word law today, what do we think of? We typically think of a list of commands. All these rules we got to obey in order to earn favor with God. But for the Hebrews who actually followed God, listen, the law was not just a list of do's and don'ts. It was a covenant from God Almighty. It was God's goodness on display in their very midst. The law, in other words, they thought of it. The law was for their good. The law was actually for God's glory. Now, here's the point. Jesus says, you think I came to do something to the law and the prophets. You think I came on the scene here to destroy it, to abolish it, to set it aside. And that is not the case, Jesus says. Jesus says, I did not come to destroy or abolish or even to dismantle the law. I didn't come to unhitch you from everything in the Old Testament Scriptures. As one commentator says, Jesus pledges his full and unswerving loyalty to the law. In other words, you could say it this way. Jesus is pro-Old Testament. He's not against it. He's absolutely for it. So much so that Jesus on the side of the mountain in the Sermon on the Mount sets the record straight on what he believes about the law as well as the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. So what did Jesus believe about the law and the prophets? Well, there's three things that he identifies for us here. These three things have great relevance for us even today. Notice number one, Jesus affirmed the continuing validity of the law. Jesus declares his position on the law unequivocally here in verse 17. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. And then notice what he says next. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, that's astonishing. Did you hear what Jesus just said? He said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, what would you think of me if next Sunday I came up to the stage and said, man, I am the fulfillment of everything written in the Bible? You would say I'm crazy, and then you would have me fired as your pastor, and rightfully so. No person has ever uttered a more incredible claim than this one right here in verse 17. 
Of course, what makes this statement so astonishing is not only that Jesus actually said it, but that it is true. So what did Jesus mean here about the continuing validity of the law? Two things jump out of here. Number one, first of all, Jesus came to, in his own words, fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew now, he's done a great job. Matthew has done his best as the author of the Gospel of Matthew to actually prepare us for what Jesus means by this word fulfill. In fact, the the first four chapters of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, are full of statement after statement of how Christ fulfilled various Old Testament prophecies through the events of his birth and even early childhood. For example, you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. So how did Jesus go about fulfilling the Old Testament? And in particular here, the law and the prophets. In their, Let me give you just three simple ways. It's not in your notes here. But first of all, Jesus accomplished something with his life. He accomplished the predictions He, in other words, fulfilled the predictions of the Old Testament. He left nothing for someone else coming later to fulfill. He fulfilled it all. Two, Jesus, he satisfied both the demands or the commands and even the penalties of the Old Testament. That is, he obeyed every command and he suffered every penalty and he did it perfectly. And three, and most importantly, Jesus, and I think this is what gets to the heart of the word fulfill here, Jesus embodied. The essence of the Old Testament. What the word fulfill means is to fill out, to expand or complete. It does not mean to bring to an end, but rather to bring to its intended meaning. And that's what we see. The Old Testament scriptures find their fulfillment, their intended goal, their intended purpose in who? In Jesus Christ. He's the one in which all of the Old Testament points to. James Boyce, he writes, and I quote, The Bible is about Jesus. He is its fulfillment in all ways. He fulfills the moral law by his obedience, the prophecies by the specifics of his life, and the sacrificial system by his once and for all atonement. Don Carson put it like this. Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament in many ways because they point toward Him. He has certainly not come to abolish them. Rather, Jesus has come to fulfill them in a rich diversity of ways. Jesus does not conceive of His life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing to fruition that toward which it points The law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. Therefore, according to R.T. France, Jesus does not contradict the Old Testament. He's the culmination of it. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus and will be fulfilled in Him down to the smallest detail. But it is also true, as one other writer says, we are not obligated to live under certain mosaic 
stipulations because much of the Old Testament was by God's design provisional and even temporary. Its purpose was to prepare for and point to the Messiah. And so if there is much in the Old Testament which is not binding on us today, it is not because the law has lost its validity or lacks even authority or perhaps is no longer inspired. Rather, he says, it is because in Jesus that law has been fulfilled. It has reached the consummation of its divinely ordained purpose. There you have it. What is Jesus saying? What are all these authors saying that I just quoted to you? They're saying one thing. They're saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything points to him and is fulfilled by him. So far from abolishing the law or destroying it, Jesus does what? He fulfills it. No wonder when Jesus led the greatest Bible study in the history of the world with the two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection that we are told in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, listen to the words here, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to these two men what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself the apostle paul further confirms what jesus is saying when he writes in first corinthians 1 20 for all the promises of god find their yes in him jesus christ so the validity of the law continues because jesus came to fulfill it not to destroy it or even to set it aside second though Jesus came to reveal the true meaning of the law and how it applies for us as kingdom citizens. Since Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and since it points to him, then he is the definitive interpreter of the law. Jesus reveals the ultimate meaning and intent of the law. This is why Jesus says, and we will begin looking at next Sunday, says several times in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, he uses this phrase that's repeated actually six times. He says, you have heard that it was said in relation to how the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching about the commands in the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, their oral arguments, their traditions. And Jesus says, but I say to you, And so Jesus, what he's doing there with that phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he is rejecting the superficial interpretation of the law given by the scribes and the Pharisees. And instead, he supplies the true interpretation, explaining the true intent of what God meant when he gave the law in the first place. As John Stott writes, Jesus' purpose was not to change the law still less to annul the law, but to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. So Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law, but he also came to reveal the true meaning of the law, which had to do with your heart and your motivations, not just your outward behavior. 
which is what the scribes and the Pharisees focused on. None of what Jesus is doing with his life and even saying through his teaching is abolishing or destroying the law. As we'll see next Sunday, Jesus, he's not relaxing. He's not teaching anyone else to relax any of God's commands. Rather, he is telling us, here's what it means to live out the commands in his kingdom. Yes, there's no doubt. There are people today who say that the very category of the law is abolished for Christians today. And that no law any longer binds Christians except the, quote, law of love. While it's true that Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, 9 through 10, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. But it's also true that the commandments are not replaced by this one command. But rather, they are summed up. Therefore, we love our neighbor not by ignoring God's commands, but rather how? By keeping them. This is why Paul writes... Why he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, the new covenant we are in through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we just abolish it? Do we set it aside? Do we unhitch ourselves from it? And Paul's answer is, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. No, don't misunderstand. We do not uphold the law to earn acceptance to God. But we do strive to uphold the law to bear witness to the very power of God's grace at work in our lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus now comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and He tells us what that looks like for kingdom citizens in the kingdom of heaven that is here on earth. So what did Jesus believe about the law? Jesus affirmed the continuing validity of the law when he came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it and reveal to us its true meaning. Jesus did something else, too. He tells us what he believes about it. Number two, he affirmed the very enduring authority of the law. He affirms the enduring authority of the law. Notice what Jesus says next in verse 18. He says, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, don't hurry past those first few words where Jesus says, For assuredly, I say to you. R.T. France calls this Jesus' own signature. Why? Because it's an authoritative statement by Jesus Christ. And it's backed up by all that Jesus is as the very Son of God. In fact, it occurs 31 different times here in the Gospel of Matthew. 
You might think of it this way. When we want to emphasize a statement, we often say, now mark my words. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that when it comes to God's word, we can mark it as authoritative, as true, as reliable, and enduring. Now, there are two implications of this. And again, this is not in your notes. One implication is if you want to follow Jesus Christ, you have to accept his authority. The reason is because there's absolutely no difference between the voice of God on Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God's voice, and the words of Jesus on this mount here. There's absolutely no difference between thus says the Lord and when Jesus says, I say to you. Authority is the only way Jesus speaks and humility is the only way we can hear him. So the first implication of what Jesus is saying here when he says, for assuredly I say to you, is that if you want to follow me, you must accept my authority. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And this is my kingdom. Another implication is to reject then God's word as we hold it in our hands, the very scriptures, is to reject Jesus Christ. Many people who claim they accept Jesus don't want to accept the Bible as his word or even the word of God. But Jesus has ruled that option out when he claimed to be the Lord of the law and actually tied his life and his ministry to the fulfillment of the law. Now, here's how enduring the authority of the law in the rest of God's word is. Notice this in your notes. The law of God will endure unchanged. It will endure unchanged. The simple fact is that God's law isn't going anywhere. It will outlast the universe. Jesus takes, if we can imagine here a little bit with me, Jesus takes a telescope, and what he does here is he looks at the heavens and the earth, the universe. In that word heavens and earth, it's the same phraseology, the same meaning when you go to Genesis 1 where it says God created the heavens and the earth. So we're not talking about heaven where God is and Jesus sits we're talking about heavens and earth the universe and jesus takes a telescope and he looks at the universe and says as long as the universe exists god's law will endure unchanged and then he sets down his telescope and he examines god's word now with a microscope and he says not even the smallest part of god's law not one jot Not even one tittle, which was the smallest part of the Hebrew letter. And he says, not even the smallest part of God's law, as I look at it through the microscope, will pass away until the the law is fulfilled. And this fulfillment of the law will not be complete, Jesus says, until the heavens and the earth pass away. And by the way, did you realize one day they will? Oh, we can't wait for that day to happen. One day they will pass away. In the new creation, 
of the new heavens and new earth. And when they do pass away, then time as we know it now will cease and the written words of God's law will no longer be needed for all things in them will have been fulfilled. Thus, our law is as enduring. God's word is as enduring as the universe itself. This is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. That is the confidence you can have in God's word. Since God's law will endure unchanged, then it only makes sense what Jesus says next. And that is we must practice and teach all of God's law. Jesus says that our adherence to the law, and this is radical, will actually determine our status in the kingdom of heaven. Look what Jesus says in verse 19. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me let this just kind of blow your worldview framework away. Because this means... The kingdom of heaven is not going to be a classless society. Jesus says some people will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, while others will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What that means is everyone will not be equal in the kingdom of heaven. So what makes the difference between the two? Jesus says it is our attitude in our actions toward the law that brings either greatness or smallness, honor or dishonor in the kingdom of heaven. And so you can think of it this way. We have two equations here. Disobedience plus deception equals dishonor in the kingdom of heaven. But obedience plus instruction equals honor. In other words... How well you obey God's word, how well you even teach God's word determines your reward in the kingdom of heaven. Frederick Bruner put it this way. If we belittle scripture, we ourselves become little in the kingdom. So let me ask you a question. What value do you place on God's law and the rest of God's word? Too often, people have misunderstood the gospel to imply that the law doesn't matter anymore. The Old Testament doesn't matter. Jesus fulfilled the law after all, and he died for our sins so that we are forgiven, and we no longer need to fear God's judgment because, as Paul put it in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the conclusion they then make is that we can dispose of the law and we can live however we want and please in this life. But again, what did Paul say in Romans 3.31? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. As Christians, listen, we, we don't neglect righteousness because we're forgiven of our sins. 
Instead, what Jesus is getting at here, and we will see this in the remainder of chapter 5 here, is we, we long for righteousness all the more because we want to honor the king with our lives. And so Jesus reminds us here in this verse that our very attitude toward the law, or if you want to think of it, our attitude toward the Old Testament is an index of our attitude toward God. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, if we treat the law lightly and encourage others to do so, in other words, if we have a settled and consistent attitude of antagonism toward it, then we show that we are strangers to the promise of the new covenant in Christ. But if we love and keep even the least of the Lord's commandments and we encourage others to do so as well, then that is a sure mark that we love Christ and we belong to His kingdom. Here's the point. A Christ follower who makes little pursuit of righteousness in his or her life shouldn't expect much of a reward in heaven. But for those for whom the gospel motivates them, It even leads them to a greater diligence in obeying God's word and living righteously. Listen, Jesus says they will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven because the grace of God is working itself out in their lives as it ought to. But should such an indifferent view of the law persist in one's life over time, then one should also have no assurance of their salvation. Now, again, clarification. Although the law is not the basis on which we merit salvation, it does provide a test of whether we have been born again or not. If we have been, then here's what Jesus is saying. Then God's law has been written on our hearts and we obey it joyfully. And if we have not been born again, then yes, we will naturally despise and resist God's law. Here's the value of God's law, if I can summarize it this way. God, God did not give his law to mess up your life. God did not give his law to make you miserable in life. God is not a killjoy. God gave us the law as a way to actually live a blessed life in the kingdom of heaven. The law, therefore, is not worthless, even though, yes, we are under grace. It still has a purpose in our lives. The law is there to teach us about God's holiness. The law is there to show us even our sinfulness. The law is there to point us to Jesus Christ. And until there is no longer a need for people to see their sin, the law will endure. The law shows us the way God intended for us to live as kingdom citizens. It's Think of it this way. Think of the law as as guardrails and signposts. Guardrails that keep us from running our lives off the side of the road. And it's like signposts that provide us direction and protection in life. On 
the night of January 6, 1996. Three friends were driving around rural Florida playing pranks. And they pulled some 20 street signs out of the ground. The next day, three of their buddies, who had just finished bowling, breezed through one of those intersections without stopping. Their car sailed into the path of an eight-ton truck, and they were all three killed. One year later, the three pranksters were convicted of manslaughter and with tears in their eyes, sentenced to 15 years in prison. Here's the point. It is a very dangerous thing to pull down even one of God's signposts that God has put on the highway of our lives. We must hold on to God's law as tightly as we hold on to God's grace. What did Jesus believe about the law? First, Jesus affirmed the continuing validity of the law. And second, Jesus affirmed the enduring authority of the law. But what Jesus said next, let me tell you, absolutely blew everyone away. Where Jesus affirmed the exceeding spirituality of the law. Notice the bombshell Jesus drops in verse 20. He says, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, that was a staggering statement. After all, it was said that if only two men are allowed to enter heaven, then one will certainly be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. Why is that? Because in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were considered to be the most righteous people on the face of the earth. These were the same guys who calculated that the law actually had 248 commandments, that is, things to do, and 365 prohibitions, things not to do. And they had the list memorized. They not only had it memorized, they ordered their entire lives around keeping that list they had memorized. And so it was assumed in Jesus' day that only the righteousness of a scribe or a Pharisee would make the grade to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or as one children's Bible put it, they were the extra super holy people. So, if you're on the side of the mountain that day and Jesus says this, you have to be thinking to yourself, well, how can anyone do better than them? I don't have a chance of getting into the kingdom of heaven. They're the most righteous people on the face of the earth. How is that possible? Of course, it is impossible to do better than them unless, unless, unless we receive God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the exceeding spirituality of the law. Notice this in your notes. The very purpose of the law is to lead us by God's grace into God's righteousness. However, not all righteousness, and I put righteousness in quotes, listen to me, not all righteousness is pleasing to God. What Jesus is going to get at here in the next few verses is that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees falls woefully short of God's perfect righteousness that he requires. Sure, they excelled 
at obeying the external requirements of God's law, but they didn't meet the punchline of the Sermon on the Mount. And that comes in chapter 5 here, at the end of the chapter, in verse 48, where Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, that ought to make all of us tremble. In other words, God requires perfect righteousness to enter his kingdom. And this is where the scribes and Pharisees fell miserably. You see, they thought that religious performance made them acceptable to God. And yet Jesus says that when we stand before God, we've got to do better than them. We've got to exceed their righteousness. So Jesus is not talking about, though, please understand, about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game. No, no, no. Jesus is talking about a whole different type of righteousness altogether. Jesus says that our righteousness needs to be a perfect righteousness. And we all ought to be asking ourselves about right now, how? Well, the only way that we can ever exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and render unto God the perfect righteousness that He requires of us to enter the kingdom of heaven is to receive it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is beautiful because God actually provides that for us. God provides for us what we could never achieve on our own. And Paul beautifully summarizes it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says this of Jesus Christ. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beautiful. But Jesus goes further. There's actually a second part that is important for us to recognize here. And that is, we should also have a, listen to me, a practical righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees as a result of Christ's righteousness in us. You see, Pharisaic righteousness was skin deep. It was external. Jesus calls them on the carpet for it. He actually says they're hypocrites. Pronounces judgment on them for it. Christian righteousness is to be real, is to be internal, and is to be true heart conformity to God's law. And so obedience to the law is not just focused on the external, but it is spiritual in nature. This is the practical fulfillment of the law that marks us as true followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, the law is spiritual. The law is practical. Therefore, we are to respond to it not in our own strength, because we will fail miserably like the scribes and Pharisees, but in the power of the Spirit that now dwells within us, who enables us now to live righteously as kingdom citizens now. Wow. Wow. I hope you see this. I hope you are seeing what Jesus believes about the law. So let me close by asking you to ponder what Jesus says here. If you are clinging to a 
in the words of Jesus, a hypocritical righteousness, then can I lovingly say to you, you desperately need what only Christ can give you. You desperately need His perfect righteousness to be your own. You need a transformed heart that's been made new and washed clean by the Holy Spirit. And you can only receive that by faith in Jesus Christ. But if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, that is, you have been saved by faith through grace, then let Jesus' words to you this morning, let them be a call to pursue a life of righteousness by living in joyful obedience to God's Word. God has set you free from sin's dominion. He has actually empowered you to live in a manner that is pleasing to Him. Now, as we prepare our hearts to participate in communion, I hope you will see what Jesus says in verse 17, and that that is our hope. It is all of our hope here this morning. Listen to what Jesus says again. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That is your hope here this morning. That is my hope. That is the world's hope. Because Jesus did what we could never, never, never do. He fulfilled the law. His righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. And because He fulfilled the law, He gave us a perfect righteousness. He fulfilled the law by living a perfect righteous life. And He fulfilled His demands against us by dying on the cross for us. So that now we can, as kingdom citizens, we can go out and we can live a life of righteousness. Not perfectly, but in the power and grace of Jesus Christ. And in essence, we can live by the commands. We can fulfill the intent of them through Christ Jesus. So as you come to the Lord's table, let me encourage you to do so with gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. As you eat the bread, man, give thanks for the broken body of Jesus on the cross. As you drink the juice, give thanks for the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And let your heart be filled with a renewed desire, a renewed commitment to live out the righteousness of Christ as a kingdom citizen. With your heads bowed. And as we meditate here for a moment, before we come to the Lord's Supper, if you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord by trusting Him for your salvation and identifying with Him in baptism and committing to His body and membership of a local church, then, then I invite you to participate in communion. If you're here and you're not yet a Christ follower, that is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I invite you to watch what we as the church are going to do. And when you watch, I pray that you will see a gracious, merciful picture of God's love for you as the church eats and drinks of these symbols of grace. They are symbols of what Jesus has done for us. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins and our place and rose again. And he's coming back. And we look forward to that. We can't wait for that day.
Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we ask that You would enable us to accept it. Not simply in our heads or even in the privacy of our hearts, but in our living. We give You the praise and the glory for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As the music begins to play, at your convenience, you are invited to feel free to stand and walk to one of the four tables throughout the auditorium to participate in communion. You may take the bread and the cup back to your seat to eat and drink and even offer a prayer of dedication, commitment, and thanks for God's mercy and grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ.